Welcome to the Matt Morgan Coaching Podcast. The fact that you're listening means you're ready to be inspired and empowered to take your life, love, and leadership to the next level. Hello, my friends. It's Matt Morgan. Welcome back to a brand new podcast and the final week of our series that we've been going through for the last several weeks around understanding with a broad stroke the five major world religions. And today we end with the world religion of Christianity, okay? And Christianity is probably the most popular of the religions within our world, as well as obviously in the Western world here in the United States of America. 2.3 billion people subscribe to some form of Christianity. And again, Christianity tips its hat toward Judaism because it is an offshoot of Judaism. Jesus was a Jew. And so just like Judaism, just like Islam, Christianity founds its root in the Abrahamic tradition. So Abraham is the start of their religion, just like Judaism, just like Islam. And from there, you have this entire lineage of the root of Jesse, David, Jesus comes from that line. And all of Jesus and Christianity is predicated off this notion of this prophecy that comes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, several other ones, but Isaiah is the most popular one. And so Christianity is really founded in Jesus. So like Judaism and like Islam, Christianity is a monotheistic religion, believing in one God, but in a different way. It's not just monotheistic, it's a triune God, which is a very theologically confusing term, but essentially that believe in one God that exists in three persons. God the Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in it, starting in the very first book of Genesis, creating Adam and Eve, and out of Adam and Eve comes every other person that's ever, ever lived. And so God the Father, we have God the Son, Jesus, and so Jesus is considered to be not only God's Son, but God incarnate, God in the flesh, and then God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives within believers. And so the whole theological notion is that God creates the heavens and the earth, and his most prized creation theologically is humanity. And we're created in the image of God. God exists as one and yet in community, and so creates us to be together in community with one another. There's a big problem though. Adam and Eve, they did not do what God said is the one rule I have for you in the garden. And they ate from the knowledge of good and evil, this fruit. That sets in motion this separation. God doesn't separate God's self from humans. It's really humanity separating ourself from God saying, we don't need you, we don't believe you. And so that sets in this motion the fall, if you will, where we are broken and that creates a separation. And so no matter what we do, no matter how good we are, and from the Christian perspective, even those 613 Jewish commandments that we talked about, about a couple of weeks ago are not enough to get us back into right relationship with God. God knows this the entire time. And so the whole idea is to bring Jesus to step into the human story as a man, 
fully human and yet fully God. And Jesus does multiple things. One, he teaches us what it means to be fully human. That's the historical perspective. And so it's not, a lot of Christians think that the whole point of Christianity is when you die to escape and go to quote unquote heaven. That's actually not what Jesus says. He says, let's teach you how to pray. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is trying to help us understand what it means to bring heaven into earth and what it means to be fully human, not just to escape this earth, but to fill it, subdue it, enjoy it, and bring heaven here. And so there is the thought of life after death in heaven. There is the thought of hell and separation from God. And there's a lot of different personas and perspectives of that, but it is through Jesus that we were able to be able to go into relationship with God and to be fully human. Jesus is the only perfect person from the theological notion, but God is still just. So someone needs to pay the penalty for our sin and the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death, which is separation from God. So Jesus says, I'll die for you. And he died in 29 AD by the hand hands of the Romans. And the way the Romans killed people was on a cross. And so it was a torture system. You would actually die, not from the nails in your wrists and in your feet or in your legs or the thorns on his head, although that was lacerations and beatings that he took. The way you die on a cross is through asphyxiation. You actually drown. Your lungs fill up with fluid and that's how you die. I mean, talk about torturesome. And so today in the Western world, in fact, our whole world, we have a calendar system that starts from BC and AD, which means BC stands for before Christ and AD stands for Addo Domini, which means the year of our Lord. And so our calendar system today is predicated on the notion of Jesus. That's how big Jesus is. And scholars today don't actually think that Jesus lived at zero AD, was born at zero AD and died at 33. He was 33 years old when he died. They actually think he probably lived about 4 BC and died probably about 29 AD on the cross. And so Jesus was amazing in so many ways. A lot of people, at least for me too, when I used to think of Jesus, I used to think of a boring, stuffy old person who sucked the fun out of everything. You start studying the Bible and you look at Jesus and you see things that will throw you for a loop. First of all, he is not the one who <laughs> was the religious one. In fact, the religious people couldn't stand Jesus. And instead, he was like the first women's rights activist. He was the one protecting women. Women would follow him, not just men. He would be the one who was for the broken and the downtrodden. He would go and heal lepers, the people who are the has-beens and untouchables. The religious people were the ones that he would piss off. <laughs> and so Jesus had this incredible connection that was so different than any other Messiah rabbi figure that the Jews had ever seen to that day. And it caught on and it caught on fast. And so Jesus is quite interesting because if you are a scholar today, even the non-Christian scholars believe that Jesus of Nazareth lived 4 BC to 29 AD. He was killed by the hands of the Romans. That was the superpower of the day. He was hung on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. And then three days later, something happened. <laughs> and so if you don't believe in miracles, then you would say, well, maybe it was a body snatching. Maybe it was something like that that happened. If you do believe in miracles, the story of the Christianity is that Jesus rose from the dead, thus breaking apart death, so that even though we physically die today as humans, we eternally live with God. And 
Jesus was the mode by which we do that. And once you place your faith and trust in that notion, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside of you as a guide, if you will, a divine guide to show you to continually how to be one in communion with God, with yourself, and with people. What's interesting about Christianity is at about 70 AD, remember the Jews had a temple and that was the place of worship for God. And so this is the second temple that has now been built. And in 70 AD, this temple is destroyed again. And that causes a massive scattering of Christians all over the place, which actually in turn, ironically, was the way that Christianity spread. They were trying to knock out Christianity, the Romans were, but instead it actually created a flame and it spread. And so at this time, what you need to understand for hundreds and hundreds of years, it was illegal to be a Christian. As I said a couple of weeks ago with Judaism, at 132 to 135, Jews and Christians, this is where it truly splits because of Simon Bar Kokhba, who was another big Messiah figure for Jews. He says, if you're a Jew, you're going to follow me. And so Jews who followed him followed him, and then Christians decided not to. And so Christians were maybe first used around 45 AD, that word Christ follower. And then what's interesting historically with Christianity is that it goes from illegal to overnight legal by the hand of the emperor Constantine. You see, in 312 AD, Constantine was getting ready to go to battle, you guys. And he had a dream of a vision of a soldier, all the soldiers getting ready to go to war, having a cross on their shield and on their armor. Now, just to give you some perspective today, again, the cross is the torture system of the Romans. So that would be like, again, if you walk around today and you see a woman or a man wearing a cross around their neck as a necklace, that would be the equivalent of that day of wearing a torture chamber chair on your neck, okay? That's what it's like. Today, the cross has this beautiful symbol, but for them, that was an awful symbol. And yet, that was the vision that he had. And so he actually went before they went to war, and he put a cross in every single shield of every single soldier. And guess what happened? They won the battle. And that was one of the biggest elements and victories that actually took Constantine overnight to start to pledge his allegiance to Christianity. He was eventually baptized. And when you're the emperor, what the emperor says, the world does. The speed of the leader is the speed of the team. And now all of a sudden we have overnight Christianity becomes legal and the Christians don't have to scatter anymore. And now they can begin thinking about like, okay, we have all of these texts, we have oral traditions, we have texts being passed down, we have writings going on. So now, like, what do we actually believe? We're not running for our lives. What do we actually think? And so we want to come together to have a universal perspective around what we believe and what the text says. And so there's seven major ecumenical councils. The first one started in 325 AD. It's called the Council of Nicaea, where there's discussing Jesus, the theology around his divinity, and the idea, the concept of the Trinity, this one God and three persons, right? It's kind of like H2O. You can be a solid, liquid, or gas, but the way that analogy breaks down is that the whole idea of Jesus and the Trinity is that it's the solid, liquid, gas at the same time. So Father, Son, Spirit, all at the same time, not one at a time. And so there is the Council of Constantinople in 381, the Council of Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey in 431, the Council of Chalcedon, in 451, where there's 500 bishops. And as this time is going on, again, this idea of universal connection is trying to be understood. That is where we get the word Catholic. 
Catholic means the universal church. And so right now, there's actually no formal pope or papacy, although Catholics believe that the Apostle Peter, which is one of the 12 disciples that Jesus had that followed him, Jesus says, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And so it is thought by the Catholics that Peter was the very first pope, if you will. And during this whole time, they're formulating and putting the canonicity of the text, which is our Bible today. The Bible is 66 letters. People say books. They're actually letters. There's 39 Old Testament letters. There's 27 New Testament letters. The whole Bible was comprised of 40 different authors written over a period of 1,500 years and then put together, you know, piece by piece by these people. Now, you got to understand, after we start getting on the Council of Chalcedon in 451, between 500 and 1500 AD, that's considered the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. One historian called this period a thousand years without a bath. You guys, this period of time was ruthless. They would burn books. They would say education is pointless. They would just have this barbarian tribe fighting other barbarian tribes. The whole goal was to kill and conquer. And so this was the most illiterate period of time and was amazing. And the thing that drove out the Middle Ages and into a new age was the invention of the printing press, okay? But I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit. We'll talk more about the printing press in just a moment, but let's go backwards a little bit. So around 700 now, we have the popes start to form. We have one pope after another, and that seems to be the head, the lineage, if you will, from the Catholic Church. But in 1054 AD, two different groups of people said, we have the pope. The one in Rome, yeah, that's the pope. And then in Constantinople, they're no, 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 we have the pope. And there's a fight. And we have our very first schism and Christianity has its first divide. We have the Roman Catholic Church and we have Eastern Orthodoxy, which still exists today. Now, fast forward from 1054 to about the late 1400s. We have a man named Martin Luther. He's reading his Bible. He's a priest. He is a person who is a bishop and he wants to be Catholic. He is Catholic, but he's reading the scriptures and he's seeing that there's a discrepancy between what he's seeing in his Bible and the way the Catholic Church is operating. And so he writes 95 theses, okay? Reasons why he sees this discrepancy, not to bash the Catholic Church, but to try to to understand and get together this universal connection theologically. So he lives in Wittenberg, Germany. You can go there today. I've been there. It's fascinating. And those doors still exist where he tacked those 95 theses. The problem was the Catholic Church got intimidated by this and they ended up excommunicating Martin Luther. And Martin Luther would not stop. He was like, no, I want people to be able to understand what the text says that has been formulated and written all these years together. Let's not play a game of telephone. Let's not deviate from this. Let's stay true to what the text says. And that was the start of quote-unquote Protestantism. So we have the Catholics and we have the Protestantism protesting the Catholic Church. But that wasn't his desire to protest and be not Catholic. He wanted to be Catholic. But they said, nope, you're no longer going to be Catholic. And so he started getting this out. And that was when the printing press was formed. How crazy is this? And so the very first book <laughs> and letter written on the printing press that goes out to the world, an illiterate world that now can start to learn to read, what are they learning to read? 
the Bible, translated into German and then into Swiss, and then it continues to go into all different languages. And so we have all these people now getting to start thinking and looking and interpreting the scriptures. John Calvin, Major, John Wesley, Anabaptists, which are now where we have the Baptist movement and Southern Baptists and all these different types of baptisms. There are now today, sadly, over 30,000 denominations of Christianity. What's nice about the Catholic Church is they've been able to do a very good job of staying connected and universal for the most part. Once Protestantism came through, everybody's got their interpretation and everybody's starting to create their own denomination. And so a lot of people, and especially myself, I know when I was in college and so many other people were like, okay, because of all these denominations, because of all these interpretations, how do we even know the Bible is real? Do we even know that historical? I mean, can we even think that? I mean, how do we not know it's not a game of telephone where, you know, it says that Jesus died on the cross, but let's be honest, he just fell off a cliff. Like, where's that, <laughs> right? Is it possible that a group of people wanted a religion to show that Jesus was the Messiah, so they created and fabricated these stories, you know, starting with the apostles, starting with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, who were actual disciples of Jesus, the apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, who was converted from a radical rabbi Jew to Christianity. I mean, was this just a game of telephone? And that was a big thought and pushback to a lot of people with skepticism around Christianity until 1947. What? 1947? That wasn't that long ago. That's right. In 1947, we have the greatest archaeological discovery in human history from a textual criticism standpoint. You see, in 1947, a couple of shepherd boys were actually hanging out in the Qumran caves and they had these goats. And you guys, these goats went into these caves and they're like freaking goats. They took a rock and they threw rocks into the cave. And all of a sudden, as they did that, they heard shattering of pottery. They go into these caves, which is in the Middle East, and they see these scrolls. And they don't know what it is, but they're like, this is probably pretty decent. So they go into town, <laughs> they find some people, and they're like, hey, we don't know what this is, but uh, can we sell it to you? And these people didn't know what it was either, but they're like, this is huge. So they sold the greatest archaeological human discovery in history for like $5. <laughs> And so they go, and what they find is all of the Dead Sea scrolls, which again is huge. The Dead Sea Scrolls, I live in Denver, Colorado, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were just here on tour at the Nature and Science Museum this past spring, and they continue to show. It is amazing. The Dead Sea Scrolls were basically scribed down scrolls written by the Essene people. We learned a couple of weeks ago that the Essenes were a monastic, ascetic group of people of Jews that lived in community together, and they would actually scribe all of this stuff together. And We have together over 800 different different texts that were found as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were written between 200 BC and 70 AD. 25% of the texts are biblical, like from the Bible, right? We have 15 copies of Genesis. We have 30 Proverbs. We have 30 different Psalms. We have Isaiah. Isaiah, which was written 700 years before Jesus was entering human history as a person, is 99% intact. Now, why does that matter? Because Isaiah is the number one letter that Christians use that Jesus is the direct fulfillment of the prophecies that come from Isaiah of what the Messiah would look like. And somehow, miraculously, it's the most intact document out of all. And so 25% of the text, another is not just biblical, it's apocryphal. So Catholics have not only the 66 books, but they also have what's called the apocrypha, extra biblical text. 
And then the rest of it, about 33% deals with the group of the life of the people of those 800 texts. And then the rest of it is unidentified because they're just fragments. And so almost all of the Hebrew Bible is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, why does that matter? Remember that game of telephone? Well, one of the things that you look at from a textual criticism standpoint, based on science, based on research, is three things. Number one, the earlier the date that it's written, the more valid that it's an actual authentic text. Number two, the distribution. The more widely a text is distributed, the more likely it is that it's authentic, and then now we can compare and contrast multiple texts within distribution. And the number three, who wrote it? That's a big deal as well. When it comes to today in America, in the United States of America, in seventh grade, you have social studies. And we study the Romans, right? And one of the great scribes of the Roman world was a man named Tacitus. Tacitus was a scribe who scratched out what the emperor wanted him to scratch out. You know, if you're the emperor, you're like, hey, Tacitus, you're going to scratch this out. And I want you to say this about me. Otherwise, I'm going to scratch you out. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, so he scratches this out. The Romans, who are the greatest superpower at this time, who have vaults to protect their literature. The earliest copy of a 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 copy that we have written by Tacitus, which is the earliest copy that we have of any Roman scribe, is 950 years difference from the original copy to the copy that we actually have today. Most of them are about 12 to 1400 years, okay? Now, why does that matter? Well, let's put this into perspective with what we just now have with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus, we now have 200 years, right? So now, instead of a 950 year, we have a 500 year. We have New Testament letters written anywhere between 44 AD to 95 AD, and we have letters written from those scribes and early documents that were only a few years, 20, 30 years difference. So when you compare something 20, 30 years, 500 years to 950 years at the earliest, we actually have to realize that if we're going to say that the Bible has, you know, a game of telephone going on, well, you would actually have to logically and scientifically say, well, that would be the case too for the Romans. But we look at social studies, we study the Roman culture, and we say, well, that's just the way it is. It's just fact. Well, you can't do that and say that if you don't also say that with the biblical text. It's just fact. And so this is why the Dead Sea Scrolls matter is because the game of telephone, if you say the Christians had the game of telephone, if you say the Bible or the Jews had the game of telephone, you would also have to say that for every other thing that we study. The reason why we don't is because the Bible has miracles in it, and we don't believe in miracles <laughs> based on the Enlightenment period of people like Immanuel Kant, Nietzsche, Freud, Descartes, Hume, people you may not have heard of, but we stand on the shoulders of them in our Western world. Separated, you know, religion or separated miracles in particular with logic and fact. So you could either be a logical person or a faith person, but you couldn't have them both. And so what the Dead Sea Scrolls is like, no, nah, you could be a faith person and a logical person, and this is the way to use logic. So one man who was a former atheist turned Christian, super famous, C.S. Lewis. Based on this stuff, he would say, listen, okay, we know that non-Christian scholars say that Jesus of Nazareth lived. He died on the hill of Golgotha. He was tortured by the Romans. He was buried in a tomb, and three days later, something happened. Well, Lewis says, well, in light of the result of the validation of what we see here with the Dead Sea Scrolls, you cannot say that Jesus was a good man and a good prophet, but not God, like the Muslims say, or like the Jews say, because Jesus actually said he was God. No person... <laughs> 
<laughs> that isn't God claims that he would be when therefore would be claimed as a good prophet. Okay. So C.S. Lewis says, listen, we have three options to choose from. And every person who has ever lived has to wrestle with which of these three is Jesus. Number one, he's a lunatic. <laughs> right? Because only crazy people say they're God, right? And they're not in an insane asylum. Number two, he's a liar. That's a choice that Jesus isn't who he says he is. And he's just straight up lied. Or number three, Jesus is God, the Messiah, the man incarnate, God in the flesh. And so those are the three options that we have. And so quite fascinating from a historical lens to see how this stuff was to develop. Now, today, the big holidays in Christian world, Christmas and Easter. Those are the big ones. Christmas is considered to be the birth of Jesus that we celebrate. Scholars actually think that Jesus was probably born more like in the fall of our time, like September, but we celebrate in December. And then Easter, which is resurrection. And so it celebrates the resurrection after Jesus died three days later. The Christians believe that he rose from the dead, breaking apart death. And so that's the biggest celebration. Now, a lot of people say, well, like, what's up with Christmas trees? <laughs> and what's up with the Easter bunny and eggs? I mean, bunnies don't even lay eggs. Like, what's up with this? Well, remember when I talked about Constantine? And when you're the emperor or leader and you conquer another barbarian state or whatever, they become Christians, but yet infused within Christianity is all of these other pagan religions that are adopted, fertility goddesses and whatnot. And so the Christmas tree was part of that. Easter and eggs is to represent their fertility goddesses. And so infused within the realm of Christianity is also, <laughs> ironically, these other pagan religions that we celebrate today. We don't really understand the backdrop, but that's the backdrop. The Easter bunny and all those kind of things is for fertility and the spring of new life. And so you see an infusion between Jesus and that. So pretty fascinating stuff that you see is the connection and basis of Christianity. But Christianity is not just the person. So many people think that Christianity is like, well, the whole idea is to be a good person. <laughs> And that's actually not true. The whole point of Christianity is to know your creator and be in relationship with your creator, to then know yourself and be in a great relationship with yourself and to know and love people. And so it is all about relationship. God is love, one text says, and therefore we are able to love because God first loved us. And so there was an infusion. I officiate a lot of weddings. The whole idea of a wedding is that the reason why today a woman wears a white dress and a man is standing there is because Jesus is referred to oftentimes as a bridegroom. And the local church, the people of God, not a building, is thought of as the bride of Christ. Isaiah has a text that says, Though your sins are like scarlet, meaning red, they shall be made white as snow. So even though you have your sin, Jesus says, I see only the beauty in you. I see the perfection in you. And you are welcomed and embraced into my world. So when a woman wears a white dress and she walks down that aisle, that's the representation of what's going on. On. Isn't that fascinating? That though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. I only see perfection. There's a bridegroom coming, and that two independent people are merging their lives together to become one flesh. That phrase one flesh in the original Hebrew, which comes from Genesis chapter 2, is the word ekad. Ekad is the Hebrew word which means to be fused together at the deepest level. Two become one. Where do we get this? Oh, we're made in the image of 
God. God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Oh, though you are separate and different, you are learning what it means to be like your creator. So essentially, marriage is the closest act we can have to be able to understand what it means to be in relationship with God because two, becoming one. It's that spiritual act, a covenant relationship, meaning ain't never going to end. That's the kind of the predicated notion around a marriage. And so there you have it, friends. That is a quick, broad stroke synopsis of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. If you got questions, we got answers. Feel free to contact us at mattmorgan.com forward slash contact us. And you guys have a great week and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Matt Morgan Coaching Podcast. Subscribe below, share it with your friends, and if you want to take your life, love, or leadership to the next level, check us out online at mattmorgan.com.